Today's episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology, the comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott. Now, Joe is not only a fantastic guitar player, he draws on his years of experience as the ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and also at the McNally Smith Music College. Here's a few words from Joe about the course. You're tired of wading through hundreds of random guitar videos and just want to become a better player. Fretboard Biology is your answer. Fretboard Biology is a self-paced, college-level program that will give you the right instruction, in the right amounts, and in the right order. You'll learn the same information I taught to thousands of other guitar players over 30 years of teaching in top music colleges. If you want to make real progress with your guitar playing, then sign up for a free 7-day trial at fretboardbiology.com. Hi there, this is Matt Wakeling and you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast, episode 208. Now this is the show that I produce in Sydney, Australia. Been running since 2016, where I speak to leading guitarists and guitar figures from all around the world. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Today I am joined by legendary journalist Dave Hunter about his fantastic new book, Fender, 75 Years. This book is published by Motorbooks and was written in cooperation with Fender themselves and it is a wealth of amazing knowledge and history of arguably the most famous guitar company in the world. So much fun talking about this and also a treat for me because I've been reading Dave Hunter's work for years. He's uh, been a contributor to Guitar Player, um, Premier Guitar, Vintage Guitar and other magazines. That's where I first became aware of Dave and also he's written many books on Strats, Tellies, Les Pauls, The Amp Handbook and funny story, the day before our conversation I was just you know searching through the net looking up some guitar stuff and bumped into a couple of Dave Hunter articles there we talk a little bit about that in the interview as well but of course the focus is on Fender and the 75th anniversary of this company and what an amazing story it is so let's jump straight into my conversation Dave Hunter welcome to the Guitar Speak podcast thanks very much I appreciate it Matt Oh, it's great. Great to have you on the show. Um, as I was saying before I hit record, uh, I've been reading your stuff for years, your books, a multitude of articles through Guitar Player and Premier Guitar, and um, that's just mentioning a couple. There's a, there's a lot more I've, I've got in the intro, but um, yeah, amazing. Ama- what an amazing career. I appreciate that. It's nice. It's very nice to hear that. It's good there's someone out there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. Now, we're here to talk about your latest book, Fender, 75 Years, of course, the Fender yeah. Company. Uh, as we know, it formed in 1946, so 2021 was a crazy year globally, but celebrating 75 years of Fender brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. Yeah, I'd like to think so. And, the, you know, the company... Uh, you know, at least made something out of it, and they were they supported the book effort. You know, and were you know authorized it, and it was made it official, and all that. I think it might have slipped by them, and I think it was my editor at, at the publisher who um, brought it to their attention. You know, maybe they would have ended up doing something, but I think before he proposed the book, I, I don't know if there was a whole lot in the works. Even you know, it's because it's sort of an odd year. It's sort of I mean, seventy five is always a big anniversary, but. Uh, 46 to 21 and with everything that was going on in the world i think it might have been easy to slip to slip by but it seemed like a cause to celebrate because 100 is still a pretty long way off sure 
for most of us. We hope to get there. But <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. It's an amazing book. It's, it's beautifully written. Um, the, the photography is incredible as well. It it's, um, almost tells the story of its own, but your, your words are, are fantastic. And um, Thank you. just wondering what kind of research goes into a project of this depth? Well, it's obviously a lot of research goes in. I mean, in some ways, I've been researching it all my life, or at least all my working life, you know, because I've been delving into these subjects anyway. So a lot of it is in there, but it required a lot of trying to find original words from people who were there. And, and sadly, as I acknowledged in one in the acknowledgments, I believe, not many of those people are alive anymore, you know, mm -hmm. or very few of them. A few, we found a few of the workers um, few of the women who were able to comment kind of through other people, but weren't in any shape given their age really to be interviewed personally or anything. And, you know, all of the main actors involved in the foundation of Fender are, are not with us anymore. So it, it required a lot of, you know, deep and intensive research into the works people had done some years ago, you know, that anything that included direct interviews with Leo Fender or Don Randall or, Forrest White and any of these, you know, various people who were there. And so a lot, a lot of it relied in I, something else I acknowledge, you know, a lot of thanks to the likes of Tom Wheeler and Tony Bacon and people who were able yeah. to conduct those firsthand interviews when people were still around. So, you know, a huge debt of gratitude to those people. And they're, off, they're often quoted or, you know, credited in the footnotes and that type of thing. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, it's fun work. I mean, you know, there's no complaint for anyone who enjoys guitars it's not a bad yeah, day to yeah. sit down and think i'm going to spend the day and the next several days and weeks researching fender's history and deciding how to present it um so you know it, it was uh it was fun work but it's just it's like any job you kind of have to sit down and get down to it you know it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't just come to you or it doesn't just happen yeah you know? sure now leo fender sometimes he's presented as this very pragmatic uh non-musician uh engineer type which I guess is is part of the picture, but what what I really appreciate uh, you bringing to the story, um, Dave, is that you explain. Well, actually, he he has got a very musical background. He played saxophone and piano and trumpet, and uh, his mm. early career in accountancy certainly set him up with some business chops that mm -hmm. that played into things. Who who is Leo Fender to you? That's a good point. I mean, I think you're starting to get at it there in that yeah he's often been misrepresented because it's often been fun to say well he didn't even play the guitar and yeah. yet he helped to you know bring about the the world's first you know widely produced solid body electric guitar and all that kind of thing and and the the most popular amplifiers and most advanced amplifiers of the day and those things he certainly did those things but he obviously was a music lover you know i mean he had the he was kind of the pocket you know the the pocket protector, square, sort of unhip seeming guy in the lab, yeah, you know, yeah. who was an accountant, you know, through the early parts of his career and then really just a dyed in the wool engineer, you know. Um, but certainly beyond that, you know, there's plenty of evidence that he really did have a deep love of music and that he that he really got into this thing because, you know, having opened his radio shop and then also built early gramophone, you know, turntables and amplifiers for all sorts of, you know, consumer, what would have been consumer audio in the day, I guess, radios and gramophone amplifiers. Yeah. He got into it because the musicians were coming in and he, you know, he could relate to the musicians and he, he didn't say, get out of here. I'm not interested in that kind of thing. He was fascinated to help develop the tools that they needed because he clearly had a love of 
music. And as you say, you know, he had played several instruments in his youth, played in high school bands and things like that. So it wasn't that music was alien to him. He just wasn't a guitarist yeah. by nature. But, but as you know, as is often told also, and you, uh, I you know, learned even more so how important it was to him to hang out in the clubs in the area at the time, um, you know, which was largely Western swing and what would become country music, but music that was evolving from jazz and evolving towards country and evolving towards rock and roll, you know. But, uh, you know, he obviously really related to those music and those musicians and was receptive to talk to them after the shows or in the breaks and find out what they needed from their gear and have them try stuff out. So, you know, I think he was deeply interested in the music. And that's, I'm sure that's what drove him to do that rather than to just stick with radio electronics or something, you know. Sure, yeah. Now, you acknowledge that Rickenbacker and Bigsby had already produced a solid body guitar. They were working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think Leo stumbled upon or or not stumbled upon very deliberately uh, brought to the fore um, with the broadcaster that, that was such a game changer when there were other, other people all heading towards that same goal? Yeah, I think it, and I think it was, it was elements that he outlined himself and part of it probably was wrapped up in um, what we we're just saying about him really uh, listening to what musicians had to say and what they were after. I think he, talked a lot himself about the fact that it should be relatively affordable to manufacture, but also solid and roadworthy and functional. It should do the jobs that needed to be done. You know, it cut out the, you can, you can look at a broadcaster early on in the early designs for them. You can see, obviously he was trying to, he wanted to cut out the frills. He didn't want anything that was adding ornamentation that needed to be paid for that wasn't functional and, and instruments that would be easy to repair too, you know, so making them, relatively easy to manufacture made them more affordable because musicians really weren't making much in the day and you know the majority still don't make much money today um so i think he really stumbled on that way of it it wouldn't be mass manufacturing by today's standards but mass manufacturing a quality product that addressed the needs of you know hard-working musicians i think it i think it simply comes to that and and then having the ability to design something that achieved that while also being visually appealing, um, you know, and addressing the sound. I think a big part of it also was that he had, you know, when we're coming to the release of the first Fender, you know, what would become the, the Telecaster, the Broadcaster and Esquires in 1950 or so, he had already been building lap steel guitars, you know, for the Hawaiian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really for this, for the, still for the Western swing market, but it had come out of Hawaiian music. And so he'd already identified a sound there that was working, you know, and, and Spanish guitarists, traditional guitarists wanted that sound because it already found that it would cut through the mix. It could be heard well and it wouldn't feed back. So, so maybe he was also first, at, you know, because Gibson already had electrics out and other companies had hollow body electrics out. It wasn't just the few like, like Bigsby and Rickenbacker who dabbled in solid bodies, but there are, there were, plenty of hollow body electrics from big makers, you know, but they weren't really addressing the sound that this type of music made. And it's interesting because he wasn't really trying to address the jazz market at all. You know, we think of like with through Gibson and Epiphone and Gretsch, those being the, the big makers of guitars, you know, early electric guitars. And those were really addressing the jazz guitar market, Mm -hmm. you know, or the, you know, the, the entertainment band or the dance band or something, which was all kind of coming out of jazz. 
and Leo was addressing this new market and and had a design with the solid body and the the pickup that really made that sound. So I, I think that I think he just struck on all fronts there, you know, and um, made him the first to do that successfully in any kind of large way, even if he wasn't literally the very first to create such an instrument. Sure, yeah, that's a really good point you make about the stylistic focus of the instruments too, and I guess um, with rock and roll just about to to explode that was like the perfect storm for for uh fender's guitar and yeah, amps for yep. that matter yeah um definitely and it's i mean it's often said that that leo wasn't a big fan of rock and roll but i i, I don't think i mean we don't know because we can't ask him now but I, I don't think i've seen anything that indicates that he didn't like what rock and rollers were doing with his guitars, but he didn't like distortion much, you know, and he was trying to keep, and most designers of the day were trying to keep distortion out of their mm -hmm. amplifiers because that was the goal. So when things got heavier, I think he couldn't relate to it very well. But I think what someone like a Buddy Holly would do with a Stratocaster, I, I imagine he was totally fine with that. And yeah, yeah. I'm sure he very much appreciated that his market was expanding too, yes. you know, that, that these were being taken up by a whole new uh, genre of players that were just, starting to become big you know yeah when i look at those first say 10 years or so i'm always just astounded by say by 55 or even 54 he, he obviously had the telly he had the, the strat um the precision bass was in there mm. and and amps which are still classic today um you write about the, the deluxe the princeton the basement um that's all in mm. the first 10 years I, my mind boggles at, at that he yeah. could have stopped then yeah. Oh, really? It, I know. It really could have. It's amazing. Exactly. You say all the, you know, the two most formidable, two of the most formidable electric guitars of all time and all the amplifier designs that people are still essentially, you know, mimicking and using. And, and as a lot of people have said that the precision bass, you know, had the most effect on popular music of anything that he created, you know, which sounds strange to guitar fans, considering everything he did in the six string world but if you think of how that really revolutionized the sound of the bass which was just going to remain purely an acoustic instrument absolutely otherwise. yeah um yeah so it really changed the way engineers worked and the way recordings were made and, and the way popular music sounded um yeah so it really is it's uh it was an amazing you say amazing 10 years and uh even the first half of the 50s for for five years from the you know the esquire and broadcaster the guitars that would become the telecaster up through the the Stratocaster and the amps that by the mid fifties, by, you know, 56 or so that were becoming going into the narrow panel cabinets and evolving towards the best of the tweed stuff. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty phenomenal, really. These so, so much time flies now, you know, it's, um, you know, it's incredible to have that kind of development and production in that short time span. One thing I really enjoyed about the book is that you're obviously talking about the instruments, and um, as a musician yourself, you know you, you've got a a beautiful bond with the instrument. Um, but I really enjoyed also you discussing all the different players, all the different characters. Like Leo, mm. always had some good people beside him, like Kaufman, and then uh, Randall, of course, during the mm. the twenty years of of the actual uh, period when he owned the when Leo owned the company. Um, so that was amazing, and then the CBS era. You write about quite, um, quite frankly, um, the the good and the bad. I want to ask you uh, two questions about the CBS era. So Leo yeah. sells the company in '65. Even even the detail on the the dollars 
Dave, that you discussed there is amazing. Leo, what was he expecting? Maybe a million dollars or something? Yeah, there was a re- exactly a report. I can't remember the source of that, but that that he was, uh, yeah, had said had said to to Don Randall, you know, I, you know, when he finally decided he needed to sell up, he felt like his health was suffering. He just didn't want to manage a big company like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And you know, let's see what you can get for it. I think I can probably get a million or something, you know. And yeah. Randall went off and got twelve point something for it <laughs> instead, you know, which uh, yeah, which which was incredible at the time. Um, and then now sounds like an incredible bargain, you know, even though, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though we know how much money it was back then. Sure. So, um, so yeah, my double header CBS question is this, what for you, do you think are the main downfalls of the CBS era? But I guess also then the flip side of that, uh, amongst all some of the kooky designs and, and the cost cutting and that stuff, what were some of the successes in the CBS era? Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a good point. And the first one, I think Don Randall in some of the quotes used in the book sums it up best in saying that it was, you know, that initially things were going just fine through CBS. And I think most people will admit that, you know, even though there's that delineation point between 1965 and collectors are all, you know, hot for the pre-CBS guitars mm-hmm. and the post-CBS less so. I think a lot of people acknowledge that those from 66, 67 are still and amps too are still mostly the same product, uh-huh. you know. Um, and I think as, as Don Randall said, I can't remember his precise words, but it just became the point where the suits were coming in, you know, the corporate people were coming in with no real appreciation for how instruments were being made. And they had, despite them having all the talent and all the machinery and the operations in place to keep making things that were just as good, they just kind of made their corporate minded decisions to blast along with, uh, things that they thought were going to benefit the bottom line, I suppose making things more cheaply and changing certain designs with an eye towards, I suppose, warranty and returns and things and, you know, uh, thickening up the finish, you know, with this heavier polyester finish and things like that. Eventually that was a little, little bit later. Um, but these things that they did to either use somewhat cheaper parts eventually or things that they thought were more sturdy, but they had a, um, you know, an impact on the sound of the instruments. Um, and I think that was the real downfall was probably that because they were through the CBS years, they were making more than ever. You know, they were, you could say they were more and more successful in a monetary sense because um, that market was still booming and, um, you know, Fender was becoming more and more widely known, you know, but I think it was just that, that losing sight of how to make a good instrument versus how to, to make one that would fatten up your bottom line, you know, and would, would crank them out quickly. And, and, you know, like with any company, it might've been something of a struggle to keep up to and acquire the good wood anymore. Things, instruments got heavier for the most part. And yeah, um, yeah. You know, all of those things and you have to make everything more quickly. So inevitably quality suffers a little bit, um, especially if you're not trying to hike the prices up commensurate to the the effort it takes to keep the quality there so I, I think that sums up you know the sort of thing that would happen to many many companies and it's not like stamping out an iphone or something in a factory where you know it, in theory you could just ramp up to stamp out more of them and go more quickly it's uh it's still a hand-built instrument even though it's factory built you know whatever machines you're using it's still comes down to someone being able to get the lines right and set the thing up and mm-hmm. carve things right, whatever amount of machinery you're using. 
Um, the successes were, um, it's, it's, let me think if there are specific instruments. I mean, again, some of those would lean towards some of the early ones that were still very good and very interesting. You know, I think the, uh, early mid sixties, well, kind of 66, 67 jazz masters and Jaguars were still very good guitars. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the silver face amplifiers of the late sixties were Excellent. I don't think there's anything wrong with many of those. And they didn't really change the specifications much until the very late 60s or early 70s. Um, one of the bigger successes that was purely CBS, though, is something new was probably the wide range humbucker, you know, that went on to the Telecaster yeah, yeah. Deluxe and Thinline. Um, you know, if there's any single thing, it was probably that and probably those models because those have remained very popular, you know. Um, and those humbucker loaded telecasters. It was a, it was an interesting sounding humbucker in its own right. You know, it wasn't trying to copy the Gibson humbucker, even though it was designed by Seth Lover, who designed the Gibson, you know, patent applied for a humbucker, the real classic. Um, you know, he was conscious of wanting to make it sound more like a Fender product, but make it hum rejecting. And, uh, you know, so it sounded good. It had a little bit of that brighter Fender sound than the Gibson, but still fatter and, and hum canceling and, you know, a lot of those, those guitars have remained popular and became a big part of a lot of, you know, kind of Indian alternative rock and grunge mm-hmm. music and stuff like that. Um, so that's, that's probably one of the bigger successes that was purely right in the middle of the CBS era. So it's a fascinating time. Um, yeah, perhaps not regarded as Fender's brightest days. Um, no. But it's always interesting to see the twists and turns of, of some of these companies when, you know, they're changing hands and things like that. I loved reading about um, Seth Lover coming to work for Fender. I, I wasn't aware of that. Um, Isn't that something? Yeah, yeah I, know, I, I don't loved, think it's something that, that, I mean, it's it's been written of, written of before now, of course, but I think years ago, you know, before I was doing this type of work, I had no idea that he had developed that pickup, and I'm sure most people didn't, you know, and most people didn't know who he was until, you know, early humbuckers started becoming a thing through, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, probably Seymour Duncan and people like that, you know, yeah. promoting the originals. Um, yeah, I know it's, uh, it's <laughs> something how these people circulated around, you know, um, between the companies of the day. I, I suppose they were talented engineers and if they left one place, someone else was eager to s- snap them up. This episode is brought to you by Fretboard Biology comprehensive online guitar course put together by Joe Elliott, ex-head of guitar at the Guitar Institute of Technology and the McNally Smith College of Music. I was one of the beta testers for the course and can say as a music educator, I was really impressed by the logical sequence of learning. The course has also been endorsed by players such as Brett Garson and Greg Cock. For more details, check out the links in our show notes. You write about the revival of Fender in the 80s with uh, people like Schultz and, and Smith really um, leading that charge. Well, what are some things they did to help uh, restore faith in, in the Fender name? I think the biggest things they did were to ha- come in with an appreciation of what made Fender great in the first place, you know, and realizing that if so many musicians were appreciating the quality and the sound of the early guitars and amplifiers that they might as well just go back to making as close something as close to those as they could again 
And so that's largely what they did, you know, with the, even in the transition period where they're having guitars made in Japan, they were basing them as closely as they could on the early designs, you know. And, and so really, I think leaning on the reissue program and then working from there to realize that many guitarists do want some more modernized guitars, you know, that become the American standards and things like that um, with some changed parts and things. But I, I, I think it was really that is, was appreciating the history of the company and appreciating what people liked about it in the first place, you know, and I, I think that was their strength and um, building it up from, from that point, you know, I think it was probably as simple as that plus, plus just sensible management, you know, intelligent management beyond that. Um, but I think it was that appreciating the history. And Dave, where do you see Fender today? Your, your book, is right up to date. So you're discussing some very, very recent models like the uh, Meteora and the, the Hybrid Tele yeah. and um, yeah. Fender making pedals again. So you're super yeah. up to date. Where, having looked at over the, the history of the company in such detail, where, where do you think Fender is at today? I think, I mean, I think Fender's in a great place today. And I don't say this, you know, merely because I, I don't work for Fender or anything, but I yeah, think. Sure any observer would have to say they're in a great place and that they're able to make really outstanding custom shop renditions of their vintage guitars that players appreciate a lot and, and feel genuinely are the closest they can get to the real thing. Whilst um, also making, you know, the custom shop can make also these high end kind of fantasy guitars that are combinations of features that they never had before or mm -hmm. custom one-offs while also addressing such a wide range of needs for, um, less well-heeled players, you know, player, players on lower budgets or beginners or, um, you know, even working musicians who might not have a lot to spend on guitars, but need really functional instruments. Um, you know, I, 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 I think it's that what, you know, Dan Smith and Schultz and these guys started back then, I think is really culminated in just fairly recent years, you know, and, and I suppose it really got a boost from the custom shop, which became kind of the flagship, mm -hmm. you know, even though, I don't know what the numbers would be, but nine out of 10 or 19 out of 20 or 99 out of a hundred, I don't know, Fender players aren't, aren't playing custom shop instruments. Um, it showed how good they could be while lifting up the image of the rest of the company, I think. Um, so, I, you know, I think they brought themselves to a, to a, they're a very comfortable place now where they're able to really also present a great representation of the glories of the past while also addressing the future in the, you know, acoustasonics and stuff like that. And um, the, um, you know, forward looking instruments and links and, you know, realizing that musicians do make music differently today. I don't, I don't think they're just leaning on the, on the past, but appreciating that what worked then still works today. If you can put it into a contemporary context and have it going forward. Um, I just see, I just see that they, you know, from having dealt with them through the course of this book and, you know, off and on over the years as a guitar journalist, but they do really seem to have their eyes on the, on the future and, you know, are able to see what is needed. Not that they, they haven't got, you know, not feet of clay as far as we did this great in the past. So we're not going to worry about what's needed today or tomorrow. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Great. Great. And Dave, what are your favorite fenders? If, if we had to, if you had to choose between a couple yeah, it's not difficult. I've always been a big Telecaster fan um, and sort of probably played them more than anything else over the years. I'm playing other, lots of other guitars these days and 
the music I'm playing. I mean, you could do pretty much anything on a Telecaster anyway, obviously. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I think it's short-sighted to try to pigeonhole things. You know, you can only do this kind of music on that guitar. And yeah, yeah. So many great musicians have proved otherwise, you know. But there's just something about the fundamental um, functionality and sound of a Telecaster has always appealed to me. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's the one guitar. If you had, you know, if you did have to choose just one to do a number of things, I, that's the one that would always work for me, I think. And I think I'm just drawn to the, not just because it was the first, but even as a kid, for some reason, I was just drawn to that basic shape, you know, and the fact that it just seemed like a no-nonsense instrument, mm -hmm. you know. Um, yeah, that's that's probably the one. I mean, it, it's 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 really hard. Now, I've never been as much of a Stratocaster player, although I was, oh, I've always had a Strat and enjoyed them and appreciated them. It's just never been a number one for me. Okay, yeah. But yeah. but it's such a um, such a beautiful design, you know, such a lithe and um, beautiful form. Uh, so it's such a space aged look uh, from the time, at least. It's hard not to be drawn to that, just to want to hold one and play uh -huh. it because it's such an amazing looking, you know, to have come from just, as you said, I mean, they were obviously developing it two or three years after the the broadcaster came out and say to have released that on the market just four years after the first, which is such a basic, you know, the, the, the telecaster, just such a basic slab. Mm -hmm. And just a few years later, as you say, how you said earlier, how quickly they were progressing and how many amazing developments they had in such a short period of time to come out with that Stratocaster design just a few years after having done the Telecaster is just phenomenal, really, you know? Um, so yeah, that's, that's one that I think always appeals to everyone, whether you play one or not, you know? uh -huh. but yeah, Telecaster has always worked for yeah. me for sure. Is there a particular flavor of Telecaster that, that you like the best? Pretty much the basic original, you know, um, ash body and maple neck, you mm -hmm. know, the, the, the basic early, early to mid fifties. I've, I've got a 1957 telecaster myself, you know, white guard wow. and it's been re wow. refinished over the, you know, it has almost no original parts other than the wood probably. Uh -huh. And I think it's got one of the old tone capacitors. Is original. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think I've got the original potentiometers too. Maybe one of them is in a drawer because one died, but, um, you know, it's had like four sets of tuners and five refrets and whatnot on it. So it's uh, you know, still somewhat playable, but it's mostly kind of semi-retired. Mm -hmm. And it was refinished for me years ago by um, a guitar refinisher and restorer named Clive Brown, a guy in the UK. I don't know if you've ever heard of Clive, but he's one of the best respected guitar refinishers and was doing the Relic thing back before it became a, a big thing with so many guitar makers because his point was if i sent him a guitar like mine that had a worn you know a maple neck with lots of play wear on it yeah. and somebody had badly refinished the body years ago and you send him that you don't want it to come back with the you want to keep the neck original but you don't want the body to look like a new guitar so yes. he was doing this for all kinds of stars i i when he brought that guitar back to me he was from the north of england i was working in london at the time he brought it back and he opened up another case and it was that famous Les Paul that Keith Richards used to play with the Bigsby on it. And whoever the current owner wow. of that was, had sent him that to have some, some kind of restoration work done. So that, that's the quality of work he, he did, but uh, not to go off on too much of a tangent about my, the refinish on my Telecaster, but no, that's great. Um, but that's the kind of, you know, I'm not a guitar collector, you know, but I'm, I'm pleased to own that one. And You're that's a player. Really yeah. The, the, yeah. For 25 years or so I've had that. Um, yeah. And, and that's the one, you know, I mean, um, as I say, I mean, there's so many early fenders that are easy to appreciate. My, my first good guitar was a Fender Duosonic 
two as a kid, um, which I sold, you know, a few months later for a a 64 Fender Jaguar, Um, you know, and that was always, those were always kind of the dream guitars, you know. As yes, I don't know about you. Like as a kid, though, you tend to only own one at a time because you can't afford. That's right. To, you know, yeah. <laughs> you so get a taste for another one, and that's you've <laughs> got to sell that for, yes. for the next one. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mentioned up front, I've I've been reading you for many many years. Loved with so many of our listeners. There's one um, in the author bio here. It talks about many of your books: the Fender Telly, the Fender Strat. Gibson, Les Paul, Star Guitars, etc., etc. All the publications you've written for, like Guitar Player, Vintage Guitar, Premier Guitar, uh, Guitar Magazine in the UK. And here's the one I want to ask you about. Uh, and is a contributing essayist to the United States Library of Congress National oh, yes. Recording <laughs> Preservation Board's Permanent Archive. That's a mouthful, <laughs> but it sounds impressive. What is that, Dave? <laughs> I put that in, so I started putting that in just slightly for fun because it's like the largest, the longest single uh, <laughs> bio note I could think of title-wise, you know, title-wise. But it also was just something really interesting and um, partly to to credit that institution, you know, that um, several years ago, this is, this is, I don't know, maybe five, six, seven years ago, um, the... Um, archivist or librarian i forget his title from from there from the library of congress got in touch and asked if i would write an essay because they're doing a series of essays to accompany their permanent archive of historic recordings Uh, and he wanted an essay about um one of the ones they had elected to permanently archive and i guess this is just some you know deeper level of safe historic archiving of these recordings to make sure they're preserved was um of Les Paul and Mary Ford's How High the Moon. I don't know if you know that song, yes, but it, yeah, was, uh, wow. it was groundbreaking recording because he was using all of his early um, multi-tracking techniques yeah, and yeah. you know, layering and echoing techniques for guitar parts and Mary Ford's harmonies and all this kind of stuff. So he wanted an essay generally about that. So I wrote an essay for that, which accompanies that, um, the sort of archiving of that. So that's available somewhere online. I haven't looked for it for a long time. <laughs> okay. But um, I just thought that was it. It was a fun and interesting thing to do, and it was fun because it was, you know, a part of a different sort of recording and music and guitar history, you know. And so it was, it was an honor to be asked to do that, and it was, uh, it was a smaller job than than any of the books, and yet it was just just kind of fascinating, you know, that that thing existed. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. That's great. And Dave, what's next for you? What's have you got any more books in the works? We've, we've discussed with um, the same publisher a couple of different ideas for possibly variations on, on, on an AMP book, but I can't say yet because they might not really happen. Okay. Um, you know, there are various ideas. I mean, a couple of ideas from others that I've turned down and a couple of ideas of my own that we're sort of having the works for, you know, discussing. And it's, it's trickier, obviously, you know, when I meet people, uh, you know, say this is the typical thing. You meet someone at a, at a party and you're chatting about what do you do and all this stuff. And, yeah. it, you know, they ask me eventually. And if they're not a guitar player, certainly um, it's kind of bizarre to explain that, you know, you make a living writing books and articles about guitars because, it, you know, how many could you how many could people need? You know, how, yeah. how much of a demand <laughs> could there be? And, you know, fortunately, there's been a reasonable demand, but it's certainly at the point, you know, 17 or 18 books in that 
there aren't a whole lot of new ideas for guitar books. You know, there's always there's always something, but it certainly is, uh, you know, it certainly slows down in that regard. And it's not a it's not a problem for me career wise as such, but it's just a reality that, you know, there are, you know, having done all that. And meanwhile, all these other great writers have been doing similar things. So there's just not so much to do um, without without drilling down so deeply to something so specialized that, you know, it's of less interest to enough people to make it worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And also the, the sad reality is the publishing market has, has tightened down, you know, for all sorts of books, you know, novels and nonfiction and everything. And the, the internet has taken its bite out of that. So there are, you know, there are publishers of mag magazines and books are less eager to, to put big budgets into production of these things, you know, and, um, it's not a, it's not, as I say, it's not a problem as such for me, but it does mean, you know, you need to think through the projects a little bit more and make sure, sure they're worthwhile. You know? yeah. So the thing, there are things in the works, but there's nothing that I can say is on its way out right now. Sure. So, but when that happens, it just means, you know, filling the same amount of time with magazine work and that in itself is fun. It's, it's fun to have, to have the, the sort of variety of subject matter of work, you know. Yeah. One of the articles I stumbled upon literally yesterday was um, uh, it was for line six and you were talking about some of the obvious controls in, in some of the, the animals. I've got oh, a, yeah. I've got a HX stomp. And so, yeah, I was checking oh, out, okay, what does the sag really do? <laughs> and the, yeah. the bias <laughs> and the hum and yeah, for someone into that stuff, it's fascinating. And for you, I know as um some of the deep knowledge of tube amps and, and transferring that knowledge into the digital world um, was super useful and, and just fun as well. Cause I knew I was going to talk to you and I thought, wow, there's another oh, good. Dave Hunter article. That's just, uh, thank you. And I, I think that just in. came out yesterday or the day before too, that, that only just, just arrived. Oh, and okay. um, yep. yeah, one of my former colleagues at guitar player magazine, Barry Cleveland has become um don't want to get his title wrong but he does editorial he's the sort of editorial director for line six and oh, okay. that type of thing. oh that's yeah, which great. i think probably involves promotional stuff but also and you know credit to them he said this doesn't you know write about the subject relating to tube amps and it doesn't need to be a sell for line six in any way but they want to put out you know a somewhat more well-rounded online magazine of their own of sorts and it does relate back to it as you say those those functions relate back to the line six helix and models but um that was that was done for that so yeah a lot there's a there's certainly more of a market for journalism online obviously goes without saying sure um that's where a lot of that is headed but it's interesting to to be able to port that stuff over and also as as you were i think starting to say it's i think it's it's I'm trying to be a realist about where you know amplification is going, and the fact is, a lot of people are using digital modeling of one sort and another, and it's become so good that it really is viable. You know, it would be when it was first coming out 20 years ago or so. I was working; I was the editor of uh, the Guitar Magazine in London. You know, and we took a lot of this stuff with a grain of salt and said, "Isn't mm -hmm. it fun to have all these amps in one box?" But you know, no, no one of these really sounds quite as good as the original yeah, thing, and I yeah. think that was true then, but. These days, at least for how you're using them, you know, within a band mix, recorded or live, I, th I think people, obviously, because plenty of professionals are getting great use out of them and this is here to stay. And it's, it's to the industry's credit that they've made it better and better and that more and more, you know, tube diehards are being won over. So um, that's certainly a part of the future. That's great. Well, Dave, thank you so much for the, uh, the years of reading enjoyment that you've uh, given 
given guitar players and guitar fans and uh, specifically thanks for talking to me about the Fender 75 Years book because uh, yeah I've loved the book I, I haven't finished uh, going back and forth it's uh, it's an ongoing project it's, good. it's so good <laughs> so thank you for, for digging into that as well thank you Matt I appreciate it. I appreciate being have, uh, asked on and it's a you know it's a great program that you're doing and uh, I you know your interest in the work means a lot to me so thanks very much All right, there you go, Dave Hunter on the Guitar Speak podcast. A real thrill to speak with Dave, and the book Fender 75 Years is fantastic. Highly recommended. I don't think I mentioned it actually slides into this tweed cover that looks like a Fender Champ or something. It's super, super cool. And uh, there you go, but wonderful book. Check it out. I'll put some links in the show notes. My great thanks to Fretboard Biology, to Joe, Todd, and the team for continuing to sponsor the show. It's been, boy, about 18 months since we started working together, and uh, I've known Joe for a bit longer as a friend of the show as well. So please check out the Fretboard Biology links as well. All right, that's about it from me. We'll be back very soon with some more Guitar Speak podcast. And if you're a regular listener, you know I like to leave you with the wonderful words of Michael Schenker, German rocker from the Scorpions, MSG, and UFO, who once told us, Keep rocking, keep on rocking. Keep on rocking, indeed. I'll catch you next time. Bye now.